Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 24th of August. Uh, I'm here with Andy and Tammy as usual. Uh, we have a lot to talk about this week, as I say every single week, but I don't know. This is like a 7 out of 10 in terms of sincerity of when I say it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's a 10 out of 10. Like last week, I feel like we really had a lot to talk about, and this week, I think we have a lot to talk about, but it's not quite like, you know, the entire internet <laughs> losing its mind over whether or not Kamala Harris is uh, is Asian American or not. Um, Tammy, uh, Tammy, how are you doing? I'm How's doing, Montana? I'm doing well. Montana is really nice. Um, very beautiful and a little choked up by the fires from Idaho and California, but but really nice. Are you, uh, have you, so how, how's teaching in class? Have, has that started yet for you? I just did one class so far and it oh. was, it was okay. I lost my breath. I don't know if you guys have had that experience, but it was. Was screaming or what? Yeah. Just talking for an extended period of time through a mask, trying to project. Like yeah. I felt oh. like I was panting. It was actually really challenging. Is your mask like sealed around your mouth or does it have like the blues? It's like a Korean mask. mask. That's so like. It's semi-sealed, but I don't know. I, I felt like I was, like, running, you know? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And for people who are in bad shape or people who are older, <laughs> that must be difficult. Yeah. Right? Totally. Yeah. I've never had a conversation through a mask. I just quietly go about my business when I'm out in public. I can't remember <laughs> the last time I had a conversation outside of, like, saying hello to the, you know, to, to the cashier or something like that. That's about it. Yeah. Once I asked like the person at the suit, there's a sushi place that does takeout now. And I was like, I asked him about the menu. I was like, uh, do you do this on the menu? And I think that's the most I've said. Yeah. Andy, how's Philly? It's good. Summer is kind of ending. The days are getting shorter. So uh, I don't know. It's a little, it's a little sad thinking that the whole summer was spent this way. Yeah. <laughs> The whole year yeah. spent this way. I don't Seriously. Know. Yeah, it's uh it's a little it's been really hot here, obviously. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah, I don't know. I, I I've been trying to figure out what else I would have done. I think I would have had more gone to more barbecues where mm-hmm. I would have, you know, had fun for like forty five minutes and then pressured my wife to leave. <laughs> Are you done here? <laughs> I think I'm done here. Um, yeah. What's the uh, fire situation, Jay, in the bay? Well, last night we got a red flag warning where I live, right? The specific neighborhood that I live in oh, here wow. in Berkeley, and um, they were it was it was pretty interesting. You get a push notification on your phone, mm-hmm. and then they tell you basically uh, to keep your window open at night because you need to be able to smell the smoke if it comes in. Oh my gosh. And they have an air horn system that they installed in 1991 when a lot of the, uh, when a lot of the hills around here burned down. Wow. And, uh, they're like, you have to have the window open so you can hear the air horn. Um, so that was, you know, it was concerning, but you know, I'm here. So obviously we didn't get burned down. We didn't have to evacuate. So yeah, it's all right. The, uh, air quality, varies i don't know maybe i'm used to it now but i can't i can't smell it in the air as much mm-hmm. but uh yeah i don't think that anyone here really understands I, I, they obviously understand what's happening but it's strange talking to people who grew up here 
and they say, uh, when we were growing up, this happened once every 15 years, and now it happens every single year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if I had known that, maybe I would have, you know, not. <laughs> I, I think I still would have moved here, but I would have thought about it for like 15 minutes. And I would be like, do I really want to be engulfed in flames at all times and have to worry about my house burning down? Yeah. Um, and now I, I, if it's just a part of life, then it, I guess it's a part of life. But, you know, that the, it does make you worry about the incoming climate disaster. Totally. And yeah. how all these things are escalating in real time. Mm-hmm. It's not so abstract. And yet it still feels abs- that a lot of people think of it as, as, as abstract, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Um, is it, um, can you see on a map how close it is to your guys' specific neighborhood? Yeah. Um, there's one that is pretty close. The hills are interesting um, in that they are very, it's like a huge stretch of land you know like it's and there's many different neighborhoods within the hills Mm. and so the one that i'm in is uh closer to campus and so it's it's protected by other hills behind us but there are hills that are like kind of like way up there and those ones are are pretty close to the fire and so um and those ones always burn (laughs) wow yeah, you could tell when you go, uh, you know, when we were like uh, looking for a place to live, you can tell because you drive around and there's some neighborhoods where they're old growth trees, not old growth trees, but like, you know, huge, huge, huge cedars and everything like that. And then there are neighborhoods that look like, you know, subdivisions that have been clear cut. Yeah. And those are the places that burned down. Right. That's along, like in the 90s. In 1991 was a big fire. Um, but uh yeah it's it's the the stuff have you been following the 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 prison stuff with the firefighting just a little bit i mean i know that people have been complaining about being short on people because they had released the slave prisoners they usually (laughs) put on the fires yeah Uh, so for the people who don't know i'm sure that you've seen hints of this essentially a part of california's firefighting response for this stuff is to take prisoners and to Pay them two dollars an hour to go fight fires. Yeah, right? which feels like I, I think that when it happened, there's a lot of like applause around this, being like, "Yeah, let's get them, you know, to be useful to society oh and God. have a job." But obviously, it's a high risk. It's a high risk thing, and they don't have enough manpower for it, so they draw from prison system. And the problem right now is that the uh, firefighting crews, of which I think there's like, I think there's like 190 or so, and uh, whatever number it is, they're at about half capacity because um, coronavirus wrecked the prison system here in California so badly that A, either, I don't think it's necessarily what the worst case scenario people are saying, which is that everyone is too sick with coronavirus to go out and fight fires. I think that it's partially the release, you know, of a lot of prisoners. But also the fact that like nobody is willing to do it at this yeah. point, yeah. you know, because they're yeah. just like fuck this. You're gonna treat us like this, and now you're gonna throw us in a fire, which I think is actually a more compelling thing than you know yeah. saying that all of them are sick. I, I'm sure some large percentage are sick, but yeah, um, yeah. It, it really the state of California at the beginning of coronavirus got so much credit. You know, it was called the California miracle, right? Yeah. And uh, it was like you would see these fawning profiles of. Uh, not of like London Breed, who I, I do mm-hmm. actually think, despite me having a lot of problems with London Breed's policies, I think London Breed actually did do a good job with coronavirus. Like, I think that's 
Um, she had some oversight, like, you know, she, she had some blind spots with the homeless population, but in general, she did better than some of the other people, even here in the Bay area, certainly better than Eric Garcetti yeah. in Los Angeles, but yeah. Gavin Newsom, like, you know, he did about as bad as any other governor did, you know, <laughs> it's just at the beginning, he was lucky in that most Californians spend a lot of time outside um, and they weren't testing the populations that were actually sick. And so it seemed like there wasn't much coronavirus here. Yeah. This thing, the prison thing is like the, is a good barometer of how well a state is doing because generally the states, municipalities control the prisons. And the outbreak in San Quentin, the outbreak in prisons across California, the lack of any response, um, the lack of caring from, you know, all, all corners, including the media, about this story. It's just stunning. Yes. <laughs> and it's not like, you know, I, I understand some part of the argument, even though I don't agree with it morally, that, you know, prison population is pretty contained. And so it's not like they can go out and infect a bunch of seniors. But that's not true. Like the guards get sick. Mm-hmm. You know, the guards go back. Uh, <laughs> the people who work at the yeah. prison get sick. The social well, and workers they keep go and get sick. Doing transfers between prisons, which was the cause of the San Quentin outbreak, is my understanding, because they brought in men from the California Institute. So I feel like there's actually something very similar to the the institutional problems we saw on the East Coast around nursing homes, where it's yep. basically right. like, yeah. who cares what happens in these institutions? And there were all sorts of just careless, untested transfers of people. It is. It has become uh, one of the things that coronavirus has laid bare. Of many of the things that it has laid bare is that uh, you know there are certain institutions where everyone can die and nobody will care. Seriously, <laughs> and that, <laughs> and that, screwed um, but true. <laughs> that there, that the general barometer for whether we should care is uh, if a white upper middle class person in a professional setting has, and not even necessarily white, but, you know, if a person like that has caught it, then we worry because all the messaging apparatus are controlled by people like that. That's nothing revolutionary that's being said, but the prison stuff just makes it so obvious, you know? Yeah. Um, All right. Let's get to our first topic, which is that uh, we have not spoken since the DNC. And, you know, we were talking before the show that it feels like it was two months ago, but <laughs> it was, in fact, only like six days ago, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Is the RNC t- this week the Republican one? I don't know. I don't Is it? Yeah. I, I believe Trump it talking is. every day? I think it is. It's like all, it's like Trump's entire family, yeah. right? It's yeah. his family and then just like internet trolls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Covington like, Catholic boys and other oh, yeah. assorted assholes. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically anyone who's been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, starts that, that woman who uh who tweeted that joke about getting AIDS in Africa. Oh she's 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 on the docket. Called <laughs> <laughs> <Hold> everyone back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they look through that that John Ronson book. So you've been internet shamed and they that's that's their entire platform. Um the uh, the, the there was a little bit of a dust up over AOC's speech, and um, <laughs> we're gonna, in case you've forgotten it, we're gonna play a little bit of it for you right here. Good evening, bienvenidos, and thank you to everyone here today, endeavoring towards a better, more just future for our country and our world. In fidelity and gratitude 
to a mass people's movement working to establish 21st century social, economic, and human rights, including guaranteed health care, higher education, living wages, and labor rights for all people in the United States. A movement striving to recognize and repair the wounds of racial injustice, colonization, misogyny, and homophobia, and to propose and build reimagined systems of immigration and foreign policy that turn away from the violence and xenophobia of our past. A movement that realizes the unsustainable brutality of an economy that rewards explosive inequalities of wealth for the few at the expense of long-term stability for the many, and who organized a historic grassroots campaign to reclaim our democracy. In a time when millions of people in the United States are looking for deep, systemic solutions to our crises of mass evictions, unemployment, and lack of health care, in el espíritu del pueblo, and out of a love for all people, I hereby second the nomination of Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont for President of the United States of America. Okay, Tammy, uh, you and I actually disagree about this speech, so I want to hear from you first. Um, like, what what do you think about this speech? Do you want to mention the Jonathan Sheet? Yeah, sure. Well, we can do that later, but, like, Tammy, what do you think about it? Yeah, I thought it was fine. My there, The criticism of it being that it's very jargony, I mean, I actually thought it was... It was a bit jargony, but it resonated with me and it was just wonderful to see her. And she was forced into an impossible position where she was given 60 seconds to express the will of like millions of people who are very disappointed with what's going on in the Democratic Party. And I feel like she had to smush in all of these different ideas. Um, Yeah, but I guess for me, I just really love her and... (laughs) I just needed to see her on stage. And so I was happy to hear her kind of give this like wish list of things. Um, Dense as it was. Do you, is that true? Do you think that she needed, do you think that there's some reason that she had to address all this stuff? Andy, what do you think? Do you think that she needed the speech kind of necessitated this type of, or the moment necessitated this type of speech? The defense of the speech was that I guess this is part of the procedure at the convention where she's supposed to kind of speak on behalf of the other candidate who who lost, which is Bernie in this case. Um, I guess you could argue that um, everyone's goal of the entire convention should just be on message, but perhaps there was talks about how we have to consolidate that uh, if a Bernie voter is upset about Biden getting the candidacy, maybe they'll be, you know, mollified by seeing AOC get on board with the agenda. I kind of agreed with Tammy in general that it's probably fine, but, you know, there's a couple of words that I kind of sounded to me a little bit like, you know, could be criticized for being um, it's kind of like shibboleths of the, uh, you know, the elite academic class, but at the same time, it's like, uh, I don't know, that's a little <laughs> bit, maybe we're like arguing in bad faith and, you know, like, you know, kind of over or was sort of underestimating the average Democratic. Well, no, look, I, I, th- yeah. that's that's a John, I, I, that's a Jonathan Chait thing. I don't care about what Jonathan Chait says. Like, I don't, you know, I, I don't think I've ever really cared what Jonathan Chait says about this type of stuff. And you know, for those who don't know, Jonathan Chait basically said, "Oh, this speech is for elite academics." And then somebody tweeted, "I think people can understand these words." And he said, 
or he says only people at elite <laughs> colleges can, not people at like mid tier college, you know, get everyone mad. But that's stupid. Like we don't have to filter our own reaction to Jonathan Chait. Like that would be a horrible world. Like I, I, I couldn't, I personally, as an overeducated, you know, coastal elite, I couldn't understand what she was saying when I watched the speech live. I don't know. I did a, I did a little bit of an exercise here and uh, I wrote my own speech. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a t- I have a timer ready <laughs> and uh, I'm oh, going to see if I could get it in in a minute. Right? Back. Oh my yeah. God. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spread it <laughs> mostly because I, <laughs> I don't want to uh, embarrass myself with how slow I, I, I was as a debater. I was not a particularly fast spreader. Um, but you know, it's okay. Speed reads, I thought that's, that's what I means. thought spreading was stupid anyway. I still think spreading stupid. <laughs> spreading for those who don't know is in policy debate, which Andy and I did and talk about every single week on this show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you talk really, really fast. And at some point we'll have Andy spread for us. And, and no, uh, no, no. I, was more sl- I was probably even slower than you. <laughs> You're slow too. Okay. Good. I, think a lot of, I don't know. A lot of Asian Americans are slow. I wonder if that's a thing. Anyway, did your wow <laughs> race science is coming to our show? Did you did you did you did your voice go really high? Mm, I don't think so. I think that was actually the problem. I was like too slow because. Um, yeah, I didn't do the high pitch yeah, easily, which yeah, I think yeah. is probably more. It's, it's, probably it's faster. horrible. It's horrible to hear. Um, all right. <laughs> Uh, I, w- I would play some on the show, but I want to spare our listeners. All right. You ready? All right. I have the timer set. Oh, boy. All right. Um, <laughs> oh, wait. I didn't actually finish. Oh, wait. No, I did finish it. I was like, I think I, li- I did actually finish the speech. All right. These have been the most tying- trying times that many of us have seen in our lives. Our country's mishandling of the coronavirus has led to what looks like a devastated country full of division. But I also see a movement that has been built from a people who have been abandoned by their government and the wealthy class who have stolen dignity and livelihood away from millions of Americans. This movement of essential workers, teachers, activists, mothers, fathers, has demanded a new vision of this country. Actually, that's the whole speech. It's 23 seconds. Vote now Joe. imagine. <laughs> Vote Joe Biden. <laughs> not vote Joe Biden, but you know, like, oh, like for this reason, I like you know, I, I, uh, I what, which, what, what's the word? I demand, or I, I, or I nominate, nominate or, Bernard, yeah, Sanders. Bernard Sanders <laughs> for president. I, that Bernard I could have fit, I could have fit two more sentences in there. I didn't realize it was so short. Now I'm even now now I'm even more disappointed. In <laughs> but that. That was the messaging I thought she should have gone with, which is a message that basically says, look, this country is still, you know, the foundation of this country is still the people, right? That the people are still powerful. The people can still unite and that um, we can. And this is a lot of the messaging around the Bernie campaign, right? Which is that we want a coalition. We want a movement. Like we want a revolutionary movement that will that will get power out of the hands of the wealthy of out of out of uh out of corrupt politicians in washington like none of that messaging was in her speech her speech was like you know america is basically a melting pot and like (laughs) i I just didn't understand that message from her at all um and you guys think i mean i think some of our disagreement or our discussion around this is has to do with the question of who is the audience for these speeches 
you know, oh, and the I, DNC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, watches this. Exactly. Cause Jay's speech, very good job, Jay. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, is, are, is the kind of speech you would deliver when you're staring your constituents in the face and you're at a meeting in Astoria, Queens, mm. you know, but the D what, who are the DNC speeches for? What are they for? I don't actually think most people watch these to be roused and really care. Like in a way, I think she was just trying to, again, do a kind of laundry list to remind the Biden camp that there is this other camp. Hmm. What's I, know, it, what? I, I know, but like the most famous DNC speeches are from young people who are ascended in the party who yeah. do give rousing speeches. I know, right? but like the, that's how Obama, conditions Obama's like, yeah, Obama's like, uh, you know, like the kid with a funny name could like that, that very famous speech. Yeah. I used to play poker and I remember there like in New York City at these underground rooms. And I remember I was playing one time and there was like this dude who's total degenerate gambler who I was sitting near and, you know, very nice guy. And um, and he would was listening to that speech on repeat on his iPod. Oh, my God. <laughs> after it came out. So what year was that? That must have been like 2004 or something. It was like 2004. That. Yeah. Yeah. And he was he had an iPod. He just listened That's to it over so and over sweet. getting really wow. emotional. It was like this white degenerate, like middle age. <laughs> so like that is a that is a rousing. That is seat, true right? traditionally. But under conditions of Zoom, I just feel like the stuff yeah. is bureaucratized to the point where not, it doesn't really matter and actually isn't reaching people or intended to reach normal people. I don't know. Maybe mm. that's too pessimistic a take. And I do think that. I think your I think your critique is too structural, Tammy. <laughs> you've, you've included too much context. <laughs> like she could give a rousing speech on Zoom. I just gave a rousing twenty seconds. Speech on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> You're think, a bad audience. No, I think the the interesting thing is that you know we passed around to several other speeches, and all of them probably hit the right notes in terms of COVID is bad and Trump is terrible. But very few of them acknowledge the what happened this summer in terms of like the protests. And, yeah. Uh, Jay, was, was that sort of what you were trying to highlight in your own rewrite that you have to actually acknowledge that the will of the people exists and yeah. it's not just yeah. do this so or like, else you're going to die? So Ed Markey, uh, you know, put out an ad that was fawned over so quite good. a bit on, on Twitter and I think rightfully. And we'll play the relevant part for you here. There's an invisible contract we all signed at birth, a promise. Every hour we work means longer days of freedom and security. It paved the road in your neighborhoods and it added up to a country. But when crisis hit, Trump's government abandoned America. We asked what we could do for our country. They looked for what they could take. But there's a truth written in every history book. If you break the sacred contract, the people make a revolution. All across America, the essential people are demanding a new deal. Well, they call me the deal maker. Okay, so for me, this is the tone. I think this is the tone that AOC should have taken, which is that when there is a contract between the people and its government, right? Mm -hmm. And that when that contract is broken as it was broken for coronavirus, but also the murder of George Floyd, people will make a revolution. And the thing that she should have said, I think, and you know, what I would have said, and not, you know, not to say that I'm smarter than AOC, I certainly am not smarter than AOC or politically savvy. Like we're doing a fucking podcast, you know? <laughs> She's like the most famous politician in America in a lot of ways. Um, 
I my my argument would just be that like she should have gone with that. She should just basically we have been failed, right? Because yeah. that was that was the that was the messaging around the Sanders campaign yeah. in 2016, 2020. It would have been a way for her to talk to the people who were in the streets protesting in a way that didn't feel like she was listing off a bunch of academic terms. Not to yeah. get too close to shape there, but like <laughs> right. you know, like colonialism. It's just like listen. I agree that anti-colonialism is an important focus for everybody, especially for Asian Americans. However, I don't think that we need to talk about it right now, <laughs> you know? especially if we're just going to say the word. Um, but I do I, think Tammy's point is correct that Biden's camp probably is not going to allow her to do that speech. Yeah. Right? They would probably be like, just stick to the script because that speech would um, implicate Biden as the most establishment politician uh, in the party at this point. Yeah. I was talking to a friend and I was like, I'm glad that she mentioned some, she had some passing reference to foreign policy. I agree that it was maybe too much of a blip to really mean anything. And then my friend was like, I wish the entire thing had been on foreign policy. The reason being it is relevant to our current moment and why we are in this Corona mess in some regard too, because that also is an act of American exceptionalism. And the foreign policy part is like where the Biden Bernie camps like super diverge. So to sort of like highlight and push right. the Biden, but would, you know, but would the but, Biden camp allow that? Again, the, these are all the criticisms of Biden. I know. And it's in such a tiny speech. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what was going through her speechwriter's head. <laughs> yeah. Look, AOC, if you need a new speechwriter, I'm right here. I, I, I have a lot of free time. You know, I can write your speeches for you. If you liked what you heard, <laughs> send me an email uh, or send an email to the show. You could DM the show. Um, all right, Andy, let, what, what's happening with uh, WeChat right now? So <laughs> good transition. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so this story broke two weeks ago. I'm sure you all saw it that as part of the TikTok story, the Trump administration, uh, you know, is obviously doing what they're doing with TikTok. Less uh, publicized or less perhaps uh, foregrounded was that they also were targeting Tencent, which runs this app called WeChat, which um, a lot of people have written about, specifically from the angle of the Chinese diaspora. A lot, basically anyone from the PRC or anyone who wants to speak to someone who lives in the PRC, they use WeChat because WeChat is one of the few apps that is not blocked by the Chinese firewall, quote unquote. One of these articles suggested that between 100 to 200 million people overseas use WeChat, which itself would constitute like a 10 biggest countries in the world. Right. So it's huge. Um, I think that it's probable that this ban will not actually come into execution. We could talk about that. But basically, I think the Trump administration clearly had no idea what they were doing. If you just hear them talk two seconds about what WeChat is, they don't understand it. Yeah. And secondly, uh, Wait, well, what do they say? Like, tell us what they say. What, so, what do they think it is? So like a day or two after it comes out, the Trump officials, I'm guessing Peter Navarro, um, says something like WeChat is primarily used by like software engineers. Right. To like Which leak secrets. In the the PRC. New York Times, right. Exactly. And uh, oh, yeah. it's actually used by like a bunch oh, of middle class and working class people. Yeah. Right? Um, and so there's that basic misunderstanding that like, uh, you know, Again, they're like pissing off so many Chinese Americans. There's a lawsuit currently uh, that was filed in California this week about by like WeChat users. Um, so I think there's that, and like I think the other thing is it would basically tank Apple's business yeah, in China. Exactly. And I feel like if, even if Trump is into that, I think if Biden gets elected, they're going to reverse that, right? Because they're not going to. They don't want. They don't want to see Apple. Um, yeah. 
lose all their business. And that's so, because yeah. Apple has more control over its store, right? Whereas so the ban would be on quote unquote transactions, which yeah. is very vague. But like the basic interpretation would be Apple can't keep WeChat in their um, iPhone store. Right. If that's the case, everyone in China is just going to start using what's it called, like Huawei phones, or what are the other ones? Like basically Chinese any phones. kind of Android phone. Yeah. Exactly. Because like. They have no loyalty necessarily. Like if everything yeah. is done by WeChat, and it's not just the chat app; it's basically like Google Wallet, right. plus Facebook, plus Twitter, yeah. plus you know everything. It's app. like the entire economy is run off of it, right? Exactly. Like it's my friend like went that. to Shanghai, and he yeah. said he didn't ever take cash yeah. out or <laughs> yeah. have a credit card. He just paid with everything exactly. on yeah. WeChat. We, he was there for months too. Wow. For sure, I've I've I was looking for like bus change last time I was there, like one or two pennies, <laughs> and I was screwed. Like, and someone eventually like. I think just they just like swipe me and like you know. They felt sorry for you. <laughs> yeah, it was Foreigner. kind of embarrassing. I was just like, uh, anyway. So They're yeah, like, like cash is nobody cares cash anymore in China, which is like, great. You must be from America. <laughs> <laughs> Talking yeah. about coins, what's like fucking yeah, yeah, coin? Yeah. Barbaric. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I have a hard time believing that this will happen. Go ahead, Andy. Yeah. Well, the other thing I was thinking of though was like. Um, we could table this discussion about what's going to happen because, like, with all things Trump, it could change tomorrow or this afternoon. The thing that I think this ties into a reader question we had, which is a lot of these messaging apps, a lot of social media, mm-hmm. not just WeChat, but a lot of these international ones, and also including Facebook and WhatsApp and perhaps Twitter, right? They've just kind of become these toxic mediums for right wing um, extremism. And uh, I think it's perhaps. This is like the kind of, I guess, a hot take. I'm a little of a, I kind of have mixed feelings about the speech chat thing because I think it is toxic in a lot of ways and it is used for um, a lot of like terrible messaging. And I'm not sure why that is or what to do about it or if, or if you know, maybe we just can't do anything about it anyway if you're kind of a free speech absolutist. Mm-hmm. But um, like, why is it that like Facebook these days is basically a medium for Ben Shapiro to spread? Uh, his I don't know. Is that is that really true? Like, I see Kevin Roos's tweets right. too, and look, I I respect Kevin's work. I like him, but like, I I always kind of like I don't really know what he's why he's tweeting that all the top things on Facebook are Ben Shapiro tweets or or like you know right wing media. That's true. Also, if you look at TV ratings, right? Like Fox News crushes all the other TV networks. Um, yeah. It seems like just a reflection of that. Like you know, you can't can't ban cable TV or cable news. It's just that conservative voters watch a lot of stuff that messages towards them, right? That's why conservatives are good at messaging <laughs> because they have a wrapped audience. Um, but I guess, I I guess I'm quite, my question is like, what is it really like a consumer market-based uh, model where just like people just like this stuff and that's why it spreads? Or uh, is there something about the control of this of these media and how does this actually happen um okay well just tell us specifically your concern about wechat because we skipped that part so, like, well, so WeChat how, is, how is wechat like how is wechat like facebook wechat's exceptional in the sense that it literally is a government that censors the language and the content that happens um but i think there's a sort of a second ripple effect so the, obviously the chinese government it's connected to the chinese government the chinese government is uh surveils what happens on wechat this leads to a lot of literal censorship like you know if you send messages about like leaders in xinjiang that's gonna right. not stay on wechat for a while but it also leads to self-censorship like 
I've said before, I would not send my family and friends messages about that because I could get them in trouble. Yeah. Um, so, and then the therefore the stuff that circulates kind of through a self-selection process is basically Chinese state media articles. Um, and then that circulates among the Chinese diaspora overseas. And even the Chinese diaspora overseas, in theory, could access all sorts of different media and all sorts of different perspectives. It's pretty limiting. And it leads to... They, do, they don't they don't do that right they all stay in WeChat. um yeah right and, yeah and, so and as a result they and i think um jay you've mentioned in your affirmative action reporting WeChat was like a big vehicle for anti-affirmative action um, yeah protests, yeah so, that, right yeah there's a la times article that came out that we want to read from you about this right which came out after this WeChat, you know proposed ban which is Across, and this is, I'm reading for the article, it's across California, WeChat has sparked political participation among Asian immigrant populations. I don't know why they say Asian immigrant populations. It's not like fucking Koreans or, you know, anyone. It's, they're talking about for Chinese WeChat. people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Community organizers used it to drive protests against affirmative action initiatives. I don't know why they're saying community organizers here either. Uh, <laughs> initiatives such as, I, I'm glad I didn't read the name if you wrote this because I'm not clicking because I don't, and uh, to see who did it, but I apologize if I, it, such as Senate Constitutional Amendment 5 and Proposition 16, which would erase the state's ban on affirmative action from California consortium, should, or co- from the California con- Constitution should voters approve it this fall. Um, Yes, uh, Andy. Uh, yes, I, you know, like the so. F- for example, a lot of the against the SHSAT, which is the test that gets kids into Stuyvesant and yeah. um, Bronx Science in New York City, the organizing around that happened in uh, WeChat around homework groups, right? So these Chinese parents have uh, are on WeChat to monitor whether or not their kids are doing their homework and to see if like what the homework assignments are. And they talk to each other, being like, "Well, in this class, they have this homework. In this class, they have this homework." And now, a lot of Stuyvesant and Bronx Science, as everybody knows, is Chinese. And so these groups are very big. And so uh, the organizing around that did happen in the exact way that you talked about, which is that through WeChat, they get Chinese state media, right? But they also um, they also get Chinese language media in America. A lot of that is very conservative, the Ch- Chinese language yeah. media, especially on questions of education. And so there's this feedback loop where they talk to each other right, about this thing. And uh, they get more stories about it. The stories are generally, you know, very, very, very against anyone who wants to change the the system, the, uh, you know, the test, the SHSAT test. And then they organize more. These groups are big. Everyone gets activated and they have protests. They, you know, they, they do things that everybody else does. They say, call your state representative. You know, they, they, <laughs> they pass around memes about Richard Carranza, who is like the <laughs> head of the head of the Department of Education in New York City, who, you know, I will say that, you know, as somebody who does not share the political beliefs of the Chinese parents organizing around this, like Richard Kronza does suck and is probably pretty <laughs> racist against Asian people <laughs> given his statement. So I understand why he's an easy target for them. Um, but yeah, it, it is it is the main vehicle for Asian American organizing in America, full stop, right? It's not yeah, just like American, among. Right. Well, no, I mean, this is what I mean. Like, it is the biggest one, no, full stop, right? Like, it's, it's bigger than anything else. It's not even close. And I think that's something that, uh, 
you know, people don't quite understand, which is that like there is Asian American activism. It's just right. It's yeah. just like yeah. it's just conservative. <laughs> like and and that they're has much more with WeChat than what's happening on the ground, right? I mean, this is always what sure. I come back to in the critiques of platforms. I don't believe platforms are neutral. You know, obviously that's silly. And as you just explained, there is direct regulation of what appears on WeChat, and that's you know, I mean, I think that in lesser forms that happens on other platforms as well, but. My question around this stuff for the right wing of Asian communities has always been like, what are left activists doing such that we don't have this sort of effective communication on these platforms? Because we also use WeChat and Talk and WhatsApp just to talk to our families and to do mundane, yeah. you know, chit chat. And why? So, you know, are left organizers also thinking about this? Yeah, it's very well, strange to me. Yeah, so the other thing I was thinking was, well, first I'd be curious if you guys have that experience with Kakao Talk. We had a listener question say, his Korean parent, listener named Jay King, by the way, who said <laughs> his, his Korean parents were getting kind of red pilled through Kakao Talk, like YouTube videos oh, yeah, about the Illuminati. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I didn't know about. I thought we'll back to that, yeah. Yeah, we can we can type table that. I also think this might tie into like what Viet Viet Thanh Nguyen was saying in your interview last week, Jay, about how we tend to assume like Asian Americans are just like victims of, you know, white U.S. imperialism. But a lot of the Asian Americans, first generation at least, that come to this country are probably anti-communists. And that's the Oh, for of. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he he said we have to be honest about what side our 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 families would right. be were on. Right. Which totally. I thought was a very funny <laughs> way to put it from his perspective. Yeah. Right. As being right. somebody from Vietnam, which is true. Yeah. I don't have that problem because, you know, my family's on the right <laughs> side of all these struggles. <laughs> but, yeah, and I wonder, like, if, 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 if immigrants... But I understand it for other people. Yeah, or if immigrants coming after the 90s feel that. But obviously, like, our parents' generation, anything during the Cold War, you're, like, on one side or the other, right, through all these proxy wars. Yeah. Um, so I think... And then, so, like, people like us as the second-generation kids who are, like, kind of too young for the Cold War, we are different, <laughs> Um, but I don't know. I, I think that perhaps that first generation is always kind of self in a, in a self-selected way, kind of perhaps more conservative, more business oriented. Obviously they, right. So you're talking about the second generation because like the people who are organizing against affirmative action are actual immigrants right, that's remember, after 1990. Right. Yeah, so like yeah, you, yeah. we, we've been, we, we've imbibed social justice language from living in this country yeah. since we were born. Right. But, um, I think a lot of the first generation, people on these language apps, you know, it's, it's difficult to generalize, but they might, I think there might be just be like, regardless of shenanigans behind the scenes, like the population pool in general might just be. It's just tilting conservative. Yeah. Right. I yeah, think in yeah. our generation, there's a ton of conservatives. We just happen to be on the left and have a lot of left friends, but sure. like a lot of the people who have the exact same profile as us are straight Republican, like don't tax me voters, you know? So, I mean, but yeah, I think you're right that there's probably a high propensity for, you know, monolingual Chinese immigrants and other Asian immigrants to be much more conservative than we are. Yeah. And to be responding to the sorts of conservative memes that circulate on these platforms, for sure. Yeah, yeah so I'm a They're... little of like two minds about the WeChat thing, because I do, my instinct is to kind of side with the sort of populist story, right? That these governments and elites are fighting over trade and the real victim is the people, right? Mm -hmm. Who just want to talk to their family back home. But I think that story covers over the like 
actual content of what goes back and forth. And a lot of it is, uh, I don't I don't want to use propaganda, right? But like state media yeah, sure. forms. And this is kind of like, a it's, a, it's, politi- it's political. And I think a lot of those stories are sidestepping that. And perhaps that's because one actually has to do the work of like combing through what's on WhatsApp. Or I'm sorry, WeChat. Um, although WhatsApp also. Yeah, issues, sure. Right? <laughs> um, so I don't know. I mean, yeah, but like, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, what the, I guess I would just say like, we should actually look at that and look at how um, a lot of like writing stuff is happening on these media platforms mm-hmm. um, instead of, but without necessarily like siding with Peter Navarro about how um, yeah. it's a medium for stealing state secrets. There is a, um, there is a, a, one of the listeners after our interview at Viet Thanh Nguyen sent a, sent a, paper from that had been written, I think, in the late 90s um, by an Asian American academic. We can put the uh, we can put the link in. It was called Four Prisons. It was really interesting to me because what it charted was that it said that the the sort of revolutionary energy that happened in the late 60s and 70s essentially became completely washed out by the 80s. Right. And that by the 80s, what you have is the rise of this second generation, real second generation of 1965 people who came over with a little bit more money who weren't like third and fourth generation people who were working in like canneries in Salinas or something like that, right? Or I don't think that's working on farms or something or like, or Japanese agricultural people who had all their land taken away from them Mm -hmm. and during internment. And that that group took that language of Asian Americans that do care deeply about racism against Asian Americans. They do care about racism against other people, but they don't have any sort of analysis about it outside of what does it prevent me to do? Mm. And that those people tended to become neoconservatives, right? And so you do have, you did in the eighties have a whole bunch of Asian people turn into neocons, right? Oh, like, really? uh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, what does that, what does that route though? How, how do they go from uh, the United States is racist against me to supporting, I don't know, it's like being, being neocons. Well, I think that they probably are extremely invested in American capitalism and, and opportunity, right? Like the uh, idea so the way that, to overcome that, it is to yeah, like you, like you need to like not put anything in my way to be to achieve what I can achieve yeah. in this country. Like that's what America is about. And in the way, and you know, and and of course, uh, the corollary to that is that to enforce that they they create a bunch of other racist litigation or a bunch of other racist legislation or they go bomb other countries right but like that was a real thing that happened there's was, was like a neoconservative movement that almost was created in asian studies departments i think that that uh <laughs> i think that that is basically what's happening that story hasn't ended at all yeah, right it's continued. so I, I i think that now we've had like 20 to 30 years of asian american studies this is something that i talked about with viet and you know i i, I really appreciated his candor about it was that We've had almost three decades now of, of Asian American studies programs producing this type of person. And it's not all the people, right? But the other type of person that they produced is the boba Asian, right? Which I think you can say, <laughs> which is like somebody who is kind of into being Asian when they're in college and then turns into like essentially part of the, of the uh, PMC, right? Um, after that. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, and I think that those types of people are increasingly becoming turning to the right, I will say. That was the last thing I want to talk about on the show, which I think is an interesting question, which is like, do you think, do you, I, it's something that I have in my head and I don't know if I'm right or wrong about this, but I don't see this future where the majority of people like us, right, who are um, educated, middle-class, 
upper middle class Asian Americans, of which there are many, mm-hmm. and also the ones who control all the money and all the political power within Asian America, out, you know, that, uh, that we don't become more conservative, that we don't get closer to the, to the immigration, to the immigrants, Chinese immigrants who are organizing on WeChat. Like, I think that those two paths converge. Yeah. And the only evidence I have for this is that, and I think we mentioned this on the show, is that there's just more people voting Republican than there were before. <laughs> You know, in terms of like it is the numbers are sliding. For and I just Americans, think that. Really? Yeah. And I also think that if you get rid of Trump, then, you know, yeah. I, I don't know what prevents Asian Americans from not turning against the Democratic Party. Like the Democratic Party has done nothing for Asian Americans. That was the thing I kept hearing when I was doing that affirmative action piece, Andy, and talking to these families that are organizing on yeah. WeChat. And it's the one thing that I couldn't quite figure out how to rebut, which is that from their perspective, they came over here, they don't speak English, right? Yeah. Um, they came over here mostly not wealthy. They have many friends or they themselves work in restaurants, like they're dishwashers or they, uh, they, they, you know, they, they're waiters, they, they work in food preparation, like those are their jobs, they're very poor. They live uh, in apartments where it's like two families in a one bedroom apartment. And they don't understand what disadvantage that they have, right? <laughs> Like, or what advantage they have. They're like, what advantage do I have, right? The only way that I can get my kid to a better life is for him to study very hard for this test. And you're trying to take this test away from me. And the people who are trying to take this avenue of upward mobility away from me are uh, are the people I'm going to vote against. Yeah. And that's a message they're fed over and over and over on WeChat, right? But is that is that message like is it is there something particularly right wing or nefarious or or like fake news about that message? That message seems to be fundamentally true to me. Yeah. Now how it now how it functions in the larger American society is like you know where you begin to craft left leftist politics, but like like that's not it's not an untrue thing. Yeah. Like those people don't have any advantages, right? They're right in feeling that way. Do they? Like what advantages could they possibly have? Yeah. But sorry, what is the extension to the capital P politics? Is the idea basically that they would look at the Dems and say, oh, they're kind of just these people who are constantly paying lip service to the disadvantages suffered by African-Americans and they don't care about me? But yeah. OK, but then what are the Republicans offering? Do they do they just look at Ed Bloom's lawsuits and go like, oh, he's Republican? I mean, because the first step I understand, but the second step I don't. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is is like reactionary politics to Democrats who are trying to take their thing away. They're like, well, these other people aren't trying to take our thing away, you know? But that's the part that doesn't, it's just that they're not ostentatiously doing so, I guess, right? So is it just the fixation on the sort of testing regime and the particular rhetoric deployed by by Dems that they're looking at? Because it's not like Republicans are like, you know, fighting for them in any clear way. Well, they are fighting for them in a clear way in that they filed this lawsuit. Well, that's what I mean. So is it just that? Is it just the Blum type thing that they're seeing? Well, okay. Like, let's let's think about this, like, from a, like, let's do some, like, analytics and data here, right? (laughs) Which is, we now have the DOJ coming out twice against the affirmative action. Right. uh, Against affirmative action. And we have a lawsuit that got a lot of publicity that is funded by people who are all ex, uh, they're all Federal Society people, right? They're all Clarence Thomas's old um, law clerks. So that's three things, right? What what has the Democratic Party done for for those families? Well, I mean, I I think that's, 
you know, I totally like, understand. What is there one thing they've done that specifically addresses the needs of those families? I mean, supporting welfare and Medicaid, which is like what is supporting these. Oh families. yeah, yeah, but that's that's, but what that's I, like it. But that's yeah. what I mean because basically, you know, I understand what you're saying, which is that at the forefront of these people's minds is their education and their children's education, right? Period. And so everything kind of revolves around that, and so they're not seeing the sort of like larger welfareism that the Democratic Party traditionally has represented. Yeah. So the, and the, so the Democrats have stopped offering any of that stuff. Meantime, the Republicans, at the very least, are uh, seen as the seen as the party that would provide some sort of colorblind path to upward mobility. You know, I mean, yeah, I guess that's to me that's very. I'm sure that's true for some families. To me, that's extremely heartbreaking and myopic because even if we stay within the universe of New York City, you know, working class to, you know, because we're talking about Jay's population of the people who want to go through the specialized high schools. So in that, so like the Asian immigrants I know and have worked with in New York City, like they receive food stamps, they need Medicaid, they get Medicaid, you know, they have path, some of them have had pathways through to get a green card through particular visas that the Democrats created. So there are things in their lives that are like, they would not survive without these things. But I guess what Jay's saying is that they're not making the connection, right? From that. I'm not saying that that they're right. I'm just saying that for for specific policies, for specific policies that are aimed specifically at these people. Right. Right. Yeah. Democrats don't do anything. In right. fact, what the Democrats do is like is punitive. It feels like to them. Yeah, right? but I'm to me, only describing their mentality. I, I, I know you're describing it, but to me, that is an alarming description that suggests that we are really missing something if we're not transmitting the fact, like as an or you know, on an organizing level, transmitting the fact that like generalized benefits are specific benefits. You know, and so sure. if Asians are only seeing their welfare in like these spectacular things that you know say asian american that have the label on them like that is an organizing problem right yeah yeah that's also a messaging problem but the part of the messaging problem is that democrats don't give a shit about asian and And so like they don't even bother with the messaging another way to put it is the messaging from both parties has kind of gone away from those economic welfare debates that totally referring to and it's just become a referendum a culture war referendum on both sides where basically like whiteness is on trial or anti-black racism is on trial. And yeah. I guess what Jay is saying is that that has blind spots right. right, for groups that don't know where they fit into that. Totally. And the Republican, Republican party definitely is a party that's just kind of um, grasping for straws, standing on white identity as their basic. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, I guess in, I guess uh, the Democrats and just kind of pushing that so hard could also have blind spots about like where do Asians fit in? Totally into that, and or or Latinos, or which Latinos. are a much bigger population yeah. than than than. Like the problem that I that like just to articulate the argument, you know, a little bit more clearly. Like the, the 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 question that I have is essentially that I do think that Andy is right, and that you are right in the sense that I don't think that these universal programs that are trying to be defended, like you know, like even like you know, like ACA, right, for example, but like Medicaid, Social Security food stamps, all these things, like you don't hear a peep about it, right? From, from the Democrats, yeah, like crazy. everything is about like identity. Everything is about, is this like ham fisted way of dealing with the protests? Everything is about like equality. This is also the problem that I had, yeah, with that's speech, right? Like, it's just about these kind of like, Hey, are you on our side or are you not? Or are you a racist? Right. <laughs> and 
that the response from that is if you take like what is the two largest, fastest growing populations in the United States, right? Like in terms of Latinos and Asian Americans, and which now actually constitute a large part of the electorate. And you basically say that you, we're just going to ignore you in all these conversations, right? Yeah. Which is what happens, right? I don't think that that is even debatable, right? Like, you know, like it's, it's one, it's one thing is like our Asians are not, our POCs are not, like, I don't think that that's necessary. Like, I don't really care about that. I think the answer is very clear that Asians are not POCs, <laughs> but like now increasingly Latinos are not POCs either, yeah. right? And like people, people recognize that, like people see that because the only messaging that they get is culture war messaging. And yeah. at that point, you're going to go with a group that 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 says hey uh you guys like we're not on your side but those guys are <laughs> definitely not on your side like they won't even acknowledge that you fucking exist and they're trying to make it harder for your kids to like have the same stuff that they have oh and by the way they're all like a bunch of rich white liberals who hate you yeah. you know and they're only doing yeah. this stuff for all those critiques work because they're fundamentally like at some level true You know, which is why the Democratic Party's like, you know, embrace of this stuff is so strange to me. You know, it's why. Yeah. The the caveat is that the Sanders campaign did do exactly all of that. Right. That the huge Latino outreach program and they were wildly popular with Asian Americans. Um, So and AOC obviously would be really popular, I think, as or is very popular as a Latina politician. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I'm talking about fucking the Democrats. Right, right. Yeah. Like, I try to separate from like, like you can't separate from the Bernie campaign because obviously it's done. But, you know, that's one of the things that's so depressing to me about all of this. It is. You know, yeah. Is that uh, I think what will happen is that you'll have this retrenchment and that I do think that the Bernie campaign could have made that argument in very targeted ways in the way that they did with Latino communities. Right. Mm-hmm. They could, they, and they did in large part with Asian communities. And all that, it seems like it's going to go away at this point, right? Like, I, I don't know. No, like, Texas will be interesting this fall because people keep claiming it's getting more purple because of the increasing Latino demographic, um, which would suggest that they are Democrat. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. We'll see. That, that might just be a lot of hot air from, you know, political analysts. Yeah. But, yeah. Let's see. I mean, Texas used Can- to be blue, you know, and then it became... Which is like red. impossible. To you know, yeah, it's and blue. California was very red, and now it's blue. So yeah, we'll see. Really? Wow. Tammy, what do you what do you, what would, what do you think the messaging should be? Like, how would you how would you address this problem? Let's say it is a problem because I think some people would argue it's not a problem, and they would say like, hey, eighty eight percent of Asians voted for Hillary Clinton or whatever number it was. Um, yeah. Uh, how would you address this? <laughs> God, I wish I knew. I mean, I I guess. You know, since you raised this, I have been thinking about just what it looks like on an individual organizing basis. And I do think it is. I mean, now I just sound like a Bernie propagandist, but I think it is kind of as simple as basically saying these are our universal like economic goals that will lift everybody. And this matters to you because of this. And you explain it, you know, like I'm knocking on a door in Chinatown and I'm like, I see that you're living two families here and that you're struggling. You lost your jobs during the pandemic. And but look, you're getting Medicaid, you're getting food stamps like there is a baseline. And do you, and it's like basically unions and the Democrats who got that for you. And like, yeah, you know, and we need to make those connections. And I think like the education stuff you're articulating is super, super hard and it's been used so cynically. And I think organizing around that is really, really difficult. But 
I think the baseline stuff of the welfare state and immigrant po- immigration policy, that's just undeniably important to Asians and Latinos. Sure, so. And you have to go in oh, with that, for sure. you know, and like yeah. you have to emphasize that and prove who gave that to you and who's still fighting for that yeah. for you, you know. And that and that they need it because part of the immigrant yeah. mentality is to ignore all that stuff and be like, fuck everyone else. I'm going to be rich. Like right. this part, yeah. you know, like <laughs> that's very it really helpful. is. It really yeah. is. It's like very like uh, much like I'm going to ignore all the things that I have here even, and I'm just going to try like if you what I actually want is I want to be richer than everybody else. Right. right? And that, 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 that's part of the mentality, right? Yeah. That's fed. It's really hard to unlearn the, like, but I do think that we're kind of dishonest that that is the mentality, right? Just as we're dishonest about the fact that like a lot of Asian Americans are pretty culturally conservative. Right. And we're dishonest about the <laughs> fact that like yeah. that, I think that there's a powder keg going on that that's about to. Well, you mean the first generation, right? Do you feel like by our generation, by the second generation, we're just like, we've, we've like overcome a lot of that stuff? No way. I think we're, ap- I think, I think we're apolitical. I would say like 90% of my Asian American friends are like, or like from college or have become like bankers or big law. Like, yeah. Well, don't. no, that's sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But I just mean yeah, went like to Yale. the social conservative stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that they're social. Yeah. yeah. No, I think yeah. it's very present in our generation yeah the other thing i was thinking and this is like a different so the first generation stuff obviously the uh, the second generation thing which i think could be related to the first is that uh there's a weird what i wonder about is that there isn't really an alternative between either fully embracing americanism or being completely against americanism which is how you get a lot of these um i think a lot of converted people on wechat they read a lot of like Chinese state propaganda. And then something that's been in the internet news is the the tankyism debate keeps, which I thought was just kind of a joke and would go away. Recently this week, there was this group called the Progressive International, which I don't really know what they are, but they yeah. like inducted one of these tanky groups into there. And it was, def- it was fought for and defended by non-Chinese um, academics who are, who consider them part of the left. And I think, right. Thinking about like uh, what Viet Thanh Nguyen was saying about how we have to reimagine Asian American identity as about American imperialism yeah. and colonialism and war is true. And that would definitely lead to a more left-wing perspective probably on Amer- Asian American identity, but it could also lead into this direction of tankyism or sort of uh, supporting uh, right wing, not right wing, supporting supporting other governments. Let's say, yeah, supporting con- other conservative positions on the grounds solely that um, America didn't do anything for us, and America destroyed my parents' homeland, and um, America is the real enemy. And so, right. you know, all these positions they have these blind spots, right? And, and yeah. I think that's something yeah. we've been talking about um, throughout. That's very perceptive. Yeah, yeah. Right. I I think that the I I I think Tammy like to or. To address that point, I think that what I would say is that I think that the ideal version of this is that you essentially say that we are united by the by American imperialism, and that we will fight against like we will fight against a degraded state that we arrived here in, and you know like we can we can acknowledge that American imperialism and capitalism that it is one big thing, and that all of us are connected, struggling under it, including white poor people, you know, in America. I think that's the idealized version of it, but I agree that there's so many posi- where's places where you can just backslide into a type of different type of nationalism yeah. that it's difficult and that um, 
the easiest thing, and I think this is what's happened with the second generation, Tammy, to your point, is that you become apolitical, essentially. Totally. Like you, you are a liberal because it is socially easier for you to be a liberal. And, um, but that's about it. Yeah. Right. Like, and my fear is that, uh, Asians and Latinos become the real silent majority in America, Hmm. right? That they, that they become the people who vote Republican, that they vote for centrist candidates, even while espousing a type of general liberal politics. And I've just seen it in my own life. Yeah. (laughs) But like, you know, I don't want to be anecdotal about it, but you know, I, I, I just like when I try and add up the things in my own head and maybe this is solipsistic in my own, in my own way. And it's like revealing more about me than I want to admit, but like, it's very hard to think about the arguments that are being put forth and to like really have any hope that the democratic party is going to help your children. Right. And that's ultimately an important thing. It happens now if you can take a larger focus on these things and say like look like you were saying tammy like you know if we can create a medicare for all then your life will be much better which is true of everybody yeah that should be the focus it's just very hard for people to think that way you know it's just not natural like they always think in terms of like what is the messaging put right in front of me and how does it affect me and my family yeah and the Democrats are just doing a horrible job with immigrants on that stuff. Like right now, basically, the only message they have is that Trump is a fascist and that, you know, like, which is all true, you know, that Trump hates immigrants. But what happens when it's like Marco Rubio that's in front of them? Jesus. And Marco Rubio says, uh, I actually am. I love immigration. You know, look at my voting record and I'm going to get rid of affirmative action. Like, don't don't you think a ton of Asian people that, you know, yeah. will just end up voting for him? Like, I, I just don't, I don't know. Like, I, 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 I think most Asian people I know would vote for that over, you know, like uh, somebody who's, who's really talking about like uh, sort of this identity politics in this sort of way where there's, you know, leaving Asian, them completely out of the conversation. Hmm. I mean, I think a lot of this is generational too, right? With the, what you're talking about with the Democrats or with the older ones. And I think the younger ones are more attuned to this. Um, well, and a lot of the younger ones, the younger ones are immigrants or children of immigrants. Yeah. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, we'll see what happens in the long, in the long run. But it does seem like there is some potential for the Democrats to just have a completely different, you know, um, profile in the next decade or so. Um, and hopefully, right? Because I mean, what you're referring to are really like the young Republicans who are able to kind of make this triangulation move, like Marco Rubio's, or you know, who are who who might be like. Oh, like Jeb Bush too, you know, like, so it's not just the young ones. I mean, the young Republicans are like monsters like Matt Gates and stuff like that, right? <laughs> but like, uh, but yeah. 23-year-old um, son or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Nestor. The Bush era, Bush, I, I guess what I'm talking about is like a Bush era, a return to Bush era politics, I think would win over so many immigrants. And now there are more immigrants than there were even when Bush ran. I don't know. Right? That was so anti-immigration, though. That whole yeah. I feel like I mean the only thing really. I agree that this is a thread that needs to be monitored, especially as people become more, especially given like the economic ascendance of some categories of these groups under Asians and Latinos. But I do think the Trumpian politics makes it so that the Democrats are going to have the Latino vote this this time around and into the near future. It's just too clear, you know, on that count. But yeah, I mean, I think we need to continue messaging in this like more welfareist, like economically driven direction. 
And yeah. you know, I mean, to me, I've always so appreciated when Democrats have to pander to Latinos, because when they do, that's been really positive for everyone because you have to talk about immigration, you have to talk about poverty, you have to talk about all yeah. of these different things. And that is the largest POC voting group, you know. That was a swing in the Bernie campaign, I think, in terms of like their successful messaging oh gosh, was when yeah. they yeah. started doing that. Um, it's incredible but, the following he had with young Latinos. And then Biden. Yeah, it's like 96%. It was, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And then Biden declined to hire Chuck Rocha, who had led the campaign, and they were just going to do their own whatever. You know, okay. that just. Yeah. That was like the one thing I, you could definitely take from the campaign. <laughs> Seriously, the most. I know, I know. It's like the one thing that worked. Yeah. It's like you don't need some of the other people who worked on that campaign. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I I like them personally, but I can understand why the Biden campaign would not no, want thanks. them. Yeah. <laughs> but like, come on, like this is like the one. Th- like it's it's not even like ideological. It's just like, hey, this guy's really good at reaching out. Yeah. You know, Seriously. I mean, it, it's just so weird. Yeah, I, I'm very, I'm like, I, the, the last thing that I'll say, and I want to know your reactions to it, is that I understand, Tammy, and I agree with you that stuff like the squad or Jamal Bowman or, um, you know, AOC is like continued ascendance into this, like almost like, see, I think she's probably, she is not just the most famous member of Congress. I think she in some ways is the most powerful member of Congress, mm-hmm. right? Like, and you, I'm sure that a bunch of politics nerds are going to yell at me and be like, you don't <laughs> understand politics. Be like, look, I'm talking about like, the next eight years or so, you know, like if you don't think that being the most famous person and being beloved in this way nationally matters, yeah, the moral you're force. fucking crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, that it does make it seem like it's actually, if you think about it, it's actually a small number of people, you know, and that I don't know if it's really reflective of much like Corey Bush. I totally was excited about her winning. Yeah. Um, Jamal Bowman. I was really excited about yeah. him winning. Zellner Myrie, I love, you know, but he's like a state senator yeah. <laughs> in, in New York, you know, he, he has like basically the same position as that kid from Kansas who did the revenge <laughs> porn, you know, <laughs> like, um, um, like uh, you know, like Ayanna Presley, who seems to be closer, you know, moving closer to being sort of part of the establishment, um, yeah. Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, like and uh, you know the most I think the most powerful establishment one is the one is uh, is Jayapal from Washington mm-hmm. State, right? Mm-hmm. It's not really that many people, you know. Like in terms of like well, how many how many ha- people are in the House of Representatives? Like three hundred and forty or something like that, right? But the Progressive Caucus is one of the largest caucuses. There's a hundred senators, you know, under Kana and Jayapal. So I mean, I think this is it is a small number. It's a minority. It's obviously like extremely difficult for them to get across platform positions. But I do think like you pointed to the moral force of these people. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and that, yeah. if we can carry that rhetorically into an organizing strategy that reaches immigrants, like that's huge. And that, yeah. does, that can exist even if it's still a Pelosi run house. And like there's Democrats like Ted Lieu who like, if he saw the writing on the wall would go more progressive, right? Like he was almost right. Yeah. Right. Like he's basically a centrist, but he that would go fine. Brown, right? He's fine. Yeah. 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 He's fine. There's a like, whole I, slice of people like that who are like. There's like a whole group of Asian. Lefty sometimes. You yeah. Know? I understand that. Like it's it's cool amongst like the Asian left, of which there are like nine people and three of them are on the Zoom call <laughs> to like tra- to trash Ted Lou. But like, I look, he's whatever. Fine. Like Ted Lou, I, I, he's not my, he's not my, he's not my ideal politician. He's fine. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I hope so, Tammy. I hope that you're right. But um, I think that it's, in the end, what we're going to have to essentially 
just figure out is that there's going to be a large percentage of immigrants, mostly a lot of them are going to be Chinese, you know, who came over after 1990, who don't like communism, period. <laughs> and they associate many things with communism. And those people will never be persuaded. It's okay. Right. And so regardless of anything, I think you're going to see as that population increases, right, which it is increasing um, just by like people having kids and stuff that that group will certainly almost certainly be part of the new GOP. Look, last last comment or question was, where do they live, though? That's the other thing. Asian Americans, those big voting blocks are going to be concentrated in like New York and California, which we don't think is like a like. They're probably just going to be like drowned out by like liberal messaging anyway, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think their votes will count in a presidential election, but they will count in terms of local elections. And look, Asians don't really vote very much, you know, and the ones who do vote, the ones who are politically active really are tend to be conservative at this point. Like that's where the trends are going. Yeah, it's something that we'll count for sure. The thing that we should be vigilant against in our extremely influential uh, positions here on this podcast <laughs> is that we shouldn't let it bleed over to the people that we know, right? Like it, it shouldn't bleed, Tammy, it should not bleed over the people. And look, I'm the same way. I just didn't go to college with many Asians, but you know, there's few Asians I do know are all bankers and lawyers and stuff like that from college. <laughs> but they vote, they vote they're Democrat. They're they're Democrats, right? probably, yeah. Yeah, they're all Democrats, but I think that they could be pushed to vote for Marco Rubio. It's interesting. Like if they're, they're going to vote, if, mm. they, if they had to vote right now, like between uh aoc and marco rubio <laughs> i think most of my asian american friends that i know who are like lawyers and bankers i think they would all vote for marco oh, rubio. No. <laughs> yeah. wow Tammy, don't you agree with that like don't you think that's maybe aoc now because she's such a superstar but like if they're like voting for like you know um like let's say they're voting for bill de blasio or marco rubio they all vote <laughs> for oh, they no. all vote for oh, no Every single one. Of, I I hate Bill De Blasio so much that I actually I wouldn't <laughs> I would vote for Bill De Blasio, but I would That's fucking amazing. be so mad about it. But like, vote Green Party. like yeah, yeah, I would actually. I would, what's that guy's name? Uh, who's the Green Party guy? Um, I forget his name. I don't know, he, uh, no, no, no. The guy running for president um, for the Green Party. Oh, anyway, I whatever. don't even know. I should. All right, so we're at one thirty now, so I think this is a good time for us to uh, get to our listener question. Andy, do you, do you have it? Oh, yeah, I have to run and like... Oh, you have to run. Okay, well, we let's do not do it then. Okay. Um, we'll read one of your listener questions next week. Uh, thank you for listening as always. We do this every week. Sometimes we do it twice a week. Uh, and uh, this week we have a transcript of an interview with Viet Tan Nguyen and we have a, another show where Andy talks should we tease it here Andy where Andy talks to yeah, sure. uh, a friend of his who is a like Andy is a Marxist historian and they talk a lot about some <laughs> of the questions around um, like Adolf Reed and uh, a lot of the stuff that's happening so if that's your thing which I think if you're listening to this podcast it probably is look forward to that <laughs> As always, you can reach us on our email at uh, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter at TTSG pod and you can DM us there. Um, and we read all of your messages and uh, we appreciate the feedback. Uh, the feedback, honestly, has been a large volume that you know, we didn't really expect at the beginning of the show and we appreciate it very much. Um, thank you for your thoughts and thank you for interacting with us in this way. Uh, We will see you soon.